Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. The crowd is standing by the shoreline, peering upwards, waiting for it to happen. Then, without warning, the F-14 tears through the sky, followed by a loud sonic boom. People's hands race to the side of their heads and cover their ears, but by then it's too late. The pilot never hears a sonic boom. The shockwaves expand and travel outwards from the jet and only affect those behind it. Much like Colonel David Russell Williams, an elite pilot by day and a predator and murderer by night, as he tore through his community, he left a wave of victims behind. The thing that fascinates me about this story is how quick the killer's actions went from fetish to murder. In December of 1952, a sleepy little town in Ontario called Chalk River made history when its nuclear station at Chalk River Laboratories suffered a major nuclear accident. Although there were no deaths, it was an expensive effort to restore it and took two years before it was back in service. Then in 1958, it experienced a second accident that caused a major fire. Its population hasn't changed much over the years and hovers around 1,000. One of the town members was David Russell Williams. In high school, he went by the name of Russ. He was born in England in 1963, and when he was very young, his father got a job at Chalk River Laboratories and moved the family to Canada. When Russ was only six years old, his mother filed for divorce, and not long after, she married Jerry Sokka. As a teenager, he did regular things like delivering newspapers and playing piano. When he was 16, his stepfather's job took them to live in South Korea. However, Russ didn't enjoy living abroad and returned to Canada and attended a boarding school his last two years of high school. Then he went to the University of Toronto and studied economics and political science. While in university, he changed his last name back to Williams. Russ obtained a degree and joined the Canadian Forces in 1987. He received his wings in 1990 and became a pilot. He married Mary Harriman in 1991 and the couple moved to Orleans, just outside of Ottawa. He trained new pilots and transported VIPs such as the Prime Minister of Canada, the Governor of Canada and the Queen of England and her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh. He continued his education and earned a Master's of Defence Studies in 2004. Russ was a shining star in the military and moved his way up the ranks. In 2009, he became the wing commander at CFB Trenton in Ontario, which is Canada's busiest air transport base. It hosts 2,300 military personnel and supports overseas military operations. Colonel Williams can still be found on the Canadian National Defence website as a senior staff member and wing commander. His military career spanned 23 years and the website lists his hobbies as a keen photographer, fisherman, runner and avid golfer. Although Russ would later admit to feeling the urge to steal female lingerie in his 20s and 30s, he says he never acted on it. However, in 2007, when he was 44, he began breaking into women's homes to satisfy his fetish of stealing lingerie. He targeted homes of attractive strangers and even some women he knew. He also had pedophile tendencies, stealing underwear from girls as young as nine and posing on their beds surrounded by their underwear and children's stuffed toys. In one break-in, he left a message for his 12-year-old victim, a note with Melcy written on it, which means thank you in French. No one was safe from his fetish. His first break-in that we know about was the home of his next-door neighbor. They were friends, he dined at their house, and they would go fishing together. And she had no idea. 
He picked locks, pushed out window screens, and sometimes found doors or windows unlocked. Later, it was revealed he committed 82 break-ins and a whopping 61 had never been reported. Russ would not only rifle through the closets and dressers of his victims to find bras and underwears to steal, he would also try them on and take photos of himself. He entered the home of his neighbor illegally nine separate times. Surprisingly, it appeared he never left any evidence behind. Russ had a method to his possession and the trophies he stole. His records were meticulous. He also liked to take photos of documents that identified his victims. Police later found thousands of photos on hard drives hidden in the ceiling in the basement of his house. The photos were buried deep within a multitude of folders, making them difficult to find. But when police did find them, they saw a pattern emerge. Russ was meticulous and organized. Not only had he stolen their underwear and bras and kept them as trophies, he photographed every single one. In just over two years, he'd collected so many, he took them to a field in Ottawa and burned them. But he kept the photos. As reported in the Toronto Star, there was a pattern to the photos he would take during a break-in. Photos that were showed in the courtroom. He would first photograph the bedroom as victim, then the underwear in her dresser. He would then arrange her lingerie neatly on a bed or on the floor. Then he would put them on and model them, and take photos of himself, often lying on the beds of his victims. Photos show Russ with a stern look on his face with his back to the camera, peering over his shoulder much like a model who struts to the end of a fashion runway and makes a sultry turn. Later in court, we would find out that as his behavior and crimes against women escalated, he began to take risks. He peered into a window hoping to watch a teenager undress, and while waiting, Anne dressed himself in the bushes outside her home. At another woman's home, from outside, Russ watched a young woman strip naked and enter the shower, broke in, went to her bedroom, and stole her underwear. In September 2009, it had been two years since his fetish journey began, and Russ's crimes escalated to a new one, one that included violence. Near his cottage in Tweed, a small rural town 200 miles from his home in Ottawa, at 1 a.m. in the morning, Russ broke into the home of a young mother and assaulted her while her new baby slept. He broke in through a screen, his face was covered, and he was dressed in black. The Star reported that the woman, whose identity is known only as Jane Doe, that she and her baby were asleep in the house when Russell Williams awoke the new mother with a blow to the head. So it began two hours of terror, the woman believing she was to die, he subdued her, laid on top of her. To her, it felt like forever. She asked if she would be killed, and he said no. Williams moved her to the side of the bed, sat on her back, and struck her very hard three times on her head and told her to be quiet. He made sure she did not see his face. She told him he didn't seem the type to do this, and the words seemed to have an effect. He seemed to get nicer. He managed to tie her hands with a pillowcase and kept uttering that he needed control over her to allow her to walk to the other room. The woman commented on how fat she was having just had a baby, thinking maybe that would make him leave, but Williams told her she was perfect and sweet. He asked her how long she lived there and about the father of the child. He blindfolded her with a pillowcase and pulled aside her tank top. He fondled her breasts and photographed her naked. He asked about the baby, and after stealing some trophy lingerie, Williams had her count backwards from 300. He then disappeared, taking a baby blanket among other things that he may have touched word mementos for his trophy collection. Then he chose another victim, one that lived alone. On September 30th, he broke into the home of Lori Massacotti. She woke up to Russ hitting her on the head. He blindfolded her and tied her up, and for the next two and a half hours, he took photos of her. Lori had no idea at the time, but she would be the last victim of Russ's to survive. He left her house, leaving her blindfolded, and went home to bed. At 5 a.m., Lori managed to free herself and call 911. 
Russ and Corporal Marie France Camo worked together at CFB Trenton. She was a flight attendant under his command. As reported by the Durham Region newspaper, he had access to her personal information, including her schedule and phone number. A photo shows a smiling Marie with a short honey brown hair sitting casually on the floor in her military fatigues, her left arm perched on her knee. Now the lines between Russ's personal life and his military life were starting to blur. He would go on to break into Marie's home, not once, but twice. On November 16, 2009, he knew from her schedule that she was out of town. He parked 650 yards from her house, walked through a wooded area, and broke into her home through a basement window. Russ knew Marie and her boyfriend of four years had broken up, and he needed to confirm she lived alone. He then returned a few days later, and sometime around 10.30 p.m., broke in through the basement window again and hid in her basement near the furnace. Marie was in the house. She just returned home. Russ hid and waited for her to go to bed, but instead she was searching for one of her cats and surprised him when she went to the basement. She spotted her cat, and that's when she saw Russ. His face was covered, and she didn't know it was him. She yelled at him, and he struck her over the head with a red flashlight. She fought hard and they struggled. She tripped over a duffel bag and fell backwards on the basement floor. Russ managed to restrain her entire wrist to a pole. He covered her face and mouth with duct tape, and over the next two hours, he sexually assaulted her repeatedly. And again, he took more photos. And this time, he also took a video. And on it, Marie could be heard pleading for Russ to untie her and let her go. As CBC reported, she said, I want to live so badly. And give me a chance. I'll be so good. Please. But Russ didn't care. He hit her on the head at least five times and continued to take photos while she struggled to breathe. He then put tape over her nose and she suffocated. He took more photos of her dead limp body. He then placed her on the bed, cleaned up the crime scene with bleach, grabbed her lingerie, and left her home and drove to a meeting in Ottawa. Her body wasn't discovered until November 25th when she didn't show up for work and her boyfriend stopped by to check on her. Two months later, on January 29, 2010, beautiful Jessica Lloyd went missing. Missing posters featured her smiling face with long brown hair and stunning green eyes. She was only 27 and had been abducted from her home north of Belleville. But unlike Marie, Russ and Jessica did not know each other. CBC reported that he later told police he first noticed her earlier in the month when he was driving by her home and saw her on a treadmill through a window. Now ladies, another good reason to close your curtains. Later, he returned and quietly waited in her backyard for her to fall asleep. Then he broke in, entered her bedroom, and placed duct tape over her face. He bound her with rope and sexually assaulted her. He then forced her to model her own lingerie while he took photos. This time was different. He had a live woman to model for him. Three hours later, Russ took her outside and forced her into his vehicle. She was blindfolded as he drove to his cabin in Tweed. What he didn't know at the time was that three witnesses saw an SUV parked at Jessica's house for several hours that night. Once at his cabin, he made her shower and let her sleep for a few hours. Video Russ had taken revealed that at some point during the night, Jessica had a seizure, likely from stress. She pleaded with him to take her to the hospital, but he wouldn't. Instead, he stood her up, dressed her, and untied the rope as she continued to convulse, and then he raped her again. As CBC continues in their report, Jessica cried desperately, her voice cracking as she said, I don't want to die, please. She continued crying as Russ pulled a sweater on over her head, and she said, If I die, will you make sure my mom knows that I love her? Russ finished dressing her, and they started walking away from his cabin, when he hit her on the head with a flashlight, put a rope around her neck, and strangled her until she stopped moving. Russ then returned to work at CFB Trenton and slept at the base like nothing had happened. 
Later, when he returned to his cabin, he dumped Jessica's body in a field not far away on Cary Road. Now, remember those three witnesses that spotted the SUV at Jessica's? Turns out that SUV left tire tracks in the snow. And six days after Jessica's murder, police put up a roadblock near her home on the highway between Belleville and Tweed. The roadblock ran from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m. the following day, and police were looking for an SUV with a very specific tire tread. Now, Russ usually drove his BMW, but that day he was driving his SUV, and as luck would have it, he drove up to the roadblock. An officer looked down and noticed the tire tread, spoke with Russ for a few minutes, and let him go, but not before noticing his license plate number. The Star reported that three days later, on February 7th, the police in Ottawa called Russ at his home and asked him to come in for questioning. Now, you think Russ would have either declined or gone to a lawyer, but no, he drove to the police department. At 3 p.m. in room 216 at Ottawa Police Service Headquarters, the police began questioning him. Two and a half hours into the interrogation, police found his weakness when they noted his gold wedding ring. As reported by McLean's, he didn't know it, but his wife of 18 years, Mary, was already staring at the truth. A team of officers inside her home searching for signs of a serial predator, they had arrived at 5.36 p.m. Russ didn't confess immediately and was struggling with how this would upset his wife. As the Star reported, he told Detective Sergeant Jim Smythe, I want to minimize the impact on my wife, so how do we do that? The detective replied, You start by telling the truth. Russell drew the detective a diagram of his house so police could find thousands of images he took of his victims. At one point in describing how he surprised Lloyd, he rises, leans against the wall in the small room and crosses his legs, takes a sip of coffee from the cup in his hand, then he sits down, folds his arm, and tells how he raped Jessica and took her to his cottage. She had a seizure, he says. He made her a model underwear, took photos, and raped her again. He says she believed she would be set free. He struck her on the head with a flashlight, meaning to knock her out, but her skull gave way. She was immediately unconscious, and I strangled her, William tells the detective. I put her in the garage. It was very cold, and I went to the base because I was flying the next morning. The interrogation lasted 10 hours, and by the end, his double life was fully exposed. The next morning, Russ led police to Jessica's body, a short 13-minute drive from his house. She was found bound with duct tape. In less than two weeks, on February 20th, the Canadian forces appointed a new commander. Russ was charged with the murders of Corporal Murray, France Camot, and Jessica Lloyd, breaking and entering, forcible confinement, and sexual assault. Hours after he was arrested, police across the country reopened their unsolved homicide cases in areas where Russ had served. The next week, local police searched his home and located the trophies of his victims, hidden and neatly organized. Police also matched one of his boots to a print found at one of the murder scenes. Russ pled guilty to lessen the impact on his wife. He expressed concern over his mounting legal bills and the effect his arrest would have on his pension. But he never mentioned the families or his victims. On October 8, 2010, Russ's trial began. In a hush courtroom, the opening statements were read aloud and took a full 36 minutes. The Crown lawyers had spent eight months sifting through evidence, much of it organized and cataloged by the murderer himself. As CBC reported, Crown lawyer Lee Burgess told reporters that he struggled to determine what evidence to put before the court and that it was important to put a substantial amount of information on the record to ensure that 25 years in the future, when Russ is up for parole, the board will be able to properly assess his risk to the community. When Burgess completed his statement to the court, the people in the courtroom applauded. Burgess did not seek to have Russ declared a dangerous offender, as it would have prolonged the hearing, and he believed the parole board in the future would not grant Russ parole based on the facts he outlined in the case. 
Burgess requested some of the items and evidence be destroyed, including Russ's cameras, rope, stolen lingerie, and his SUV. Judge Robert Scott granted his request, and Russ's SUV was later crushed and scrapped. Before sentencing, Russ took five minutes to address the court. He was crying, shaking, and paused between his sentences. He told the judge he was ashamed and apologized to the families of Jessica and Marie. One can only wonder when a murderer cries in court. Are the tears for himself or the fact that he's going to prison, or are they truly for his victims? I guess we'll never know. On October 21st, Judge Scott sentenced David Russell Williams to two concurrent terms of life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. He won't be eligible for parole until he is 72. He began serving his sentence at the renowned Kingston Penitentiary in Ontario. Once her former commander was sentenced, the military's action was swift. The day after Russ was sentenced, he was stripped of his rank and expelled. His severance pay was terminated and the salary he received after his arrest had been seized. Although incarcerated, he still receives a $60,000 annual pension because the military's legislation clearly states that benefits are exempt from seizures. Now this legislation seriously needs to be amended in the case of a convicted murderer. As CBC News reported, a month later a military doctor from the Canadian Forces visited Russ in prison. It is their policy before releasing a member to conduct his final medical exam to confirm their state of physical and mental health. His release from the military was under service misconduct, which is the most serious cause. The military also stated that they will be working with Russ's family to retrieve his medals and his scroll, which will then be destroyed. A scroll is an official document that confirms he was a serving officer, and that he had received two medals. One was for good service, the second the Southwest Asia Service Medal was for serving at least 30 days in Afghanistan. The military also took the extraordinary step of burning his uniform and clothing. Although he was stripped of his medals, we could not confirm that his medals were destroyed. Russ was later moved to a maximum security prison in Porcache, Quebec. Russ's stepfather, Jerry Sofka, told the Globe and Mail, I spent my career doing things right and avoiding things that were wrong, but here I can't figure out what went wrong. Russ's wife would eventually divorce him, but only after he transferred the property to her, and many wondered if she could have had an inkling of what he was doing, but she claimed she didn't know anything and that she was a victim too. She went on to say that her husband didn't live at home full-time and would spend nights at the base or at their cabin, and when he was home, he disappeared for hours, telling her his back was sore and he was going for a walk. Russ went to a lot of trouble to conceal all his photos and his trophies, and he never gave her a reason to start digging. During their divorce, it came out that she visited Russ in prison after he pled guilty. His victim that survived, Lori Massacott, filed a $7 million lawsuit against Russ, his wife, and the Ontario government for negligence she said she suffered at the hands of the Ontario Provincial Police, including that police initially excluded her neighbor, Colonel David Russell Williams, as a potential suspect due to his esteemed position in the Air Force. In October 2016, the lawsuit was settled, but details were not released. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Jean James who got away with murder for 16 years. In a jealous and violent rage, she slit the throat of her girlfriend and left her for dead. Jean meticulously planned Gladys' murder and never told a soul. That is, until she shared her secret with a cop 16 years later. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murder20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. 
If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Fastlane Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.